BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need Home Title Lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Over at Democratic Underground, Dennis Donovan posted a fascinating piece. Well, it's actually a repost of Andrew Feinberg's tweet. And Dennis blew it up and put it on DU. Andrew Feinberg, he's the source of this. It's at Andrew Feinberg, F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. And it's from a local attorney who went to high school and college with Bill Barr. The lawyer's name is Jimmy Lohman, L-O-H-M-A-N. He is currently a civil rights and criminal defense attorney. He's lived in Tallahassee since 1974. This is in the local Tallahassee newspaper called the Florida Flambeau on November 18th. And which is interesting. I mean, this is from 1991, which was about the time that Bill Barr was made attorney general by George Herbert Walker Bush. You'll recall back in 92, Attorney General Bill Barr buried the investigation, well, the criminal prosecutions, actually. They'd already gotten three criminal convictions, and there were two more in the pipeline. Lawrence Walsh, the prosecutor, and Bill Barr went to George Herbert Walker Bush, who was president then. This was literally three weeks before Bill Clinton was going to be sworn into office. Clinton had already won the election. George Bush had lost the election. 
And Bush was desperately trying to cover up Iran-Contra because he himself didn't want to be prosecuted. And Reagan was like long into senility, but still this revealed the crimes of the Reagan administration going all the way back to the 1980 election and the deal that they cut with the Iranian government. So this is, you know, this was when, the, this was the first time Bill Barr kind of cycled through this, okay? So just, just listen to this, this is r- remarkable. It's titled, What Bill Barr Isn't. And Jimmy Lohman writes, I admit it, I have a personal ax to grind with Billy Barr, who is poised to be the next Attorney General of the United States. So this was, again, 1999, as George H.W. Bush was about to make Bill Barr the Attorney General, and then Bill Barr would go on to cover up two major scandals that Bush had been in the middle of, the so-called Iraq Gate Weapons of Mass Destruction scandal, where the Reagan administration was selling nerve gas and poison gas to Saddam Hussein that he was using against the Iranians in their war and illegally, you know, in violation of U.S. law and international law, and, and uh, which William Sapphire was just going crazy about in the New York Times. So you had that, plus obviously Iran-Contra, the arms for hostages deal. Well, I need not recap it all. You know what I'm talking about. So he says, I have a personal axe to grind with Billy Barr. I had the misfortune of knowing the AG dude pretty well, parenthesis, a lot better than I wanted to, close parenthesis, in junior high, high school, and college. Billy was my very own high school tormentor. Now, he was the classic bully, this Mr. Lohman writes. I met Billy when I was in the seventh grade. Billy was a porky ninth grader who had a vicious fixation on my little Jewish commie ass. And in, in quotes, Billy and another ugly, mean porker friend of his lived to make me miserable. Combined, they weighed a good three times what I weighed, and they put the crunch on me every chance they get. So. I'm curious your thoughts on this. I was having a conversation with a dear friend of mine in an email yesterday, and Earl was suggesting, what is the source of bullying? What is the source of authoritarianism? You know, does it come out of people being abused as kids? I mean, we know that the, you know, the Nazi child care manuals that that during the Third Reich taught parents to beat their children. Did that produce fascism? Is it, is it something that is learned from our culture? I remember Jack Forbes, Professor Jack Forbes. He was a professor of Native American studies. I mentioned him last week. I read about him, uh, there's almost a whole chapter about him in my book, The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Jack was, uh, or Dr. Forbes, was a, a Native American and a full professor of Native American studies at the University of California at Davis. And I made a pilgrimage out there to interview him for my book. And, and he's, you know, he, I, and those of you who tuned in last week, you heard me telling this story. He, he said, you know, when, when Native people, we, we had figured out, I mean, it probably took thousands of years for it to happen, but we had figured out how to live with each other in peace. Basically, tribal conflicts, what you would call war, um, only very, very rarely happened in the Americas by the time Columbus showed up. Most people were living peacefully and they'd figured out ways to resolve these conflicts. Lacrosse, for example, the game lacrosse was what the Iroquois Confederacy did, you know, when there were conflicts as a way of settling conflict without war. 
counting coup. We think that you know counting coup is killing the enemy. No, when you when you drew blood from the enemy, that was the point at which you stopped the individual battle with that other person. And they were out. They were out of a game. They were bleeding. Okay, you're out. Sort of like football. You're tackled, right? You're injured. You're down. The idea of genocidal warfare was something that was completely alien to these folks. And the only times that there had been really serious warfare that involved displacing people from one place to another, the only time that happened was um, it, it, back in the, I believe it was the 600s, there was that, the, the Little Dryas, there was the, the Little Ice Age, or maybe it was the, a little later than that, maybe it was the early 1600s, but whenever it was, when some of the Denny people, the, the Southern Canadian Native Americans, traveled south because the climate had changed and the summer had gotten so cold and so short that, that the crops were not growing, the abundance of food was going away. And as a result of that, you know, they had to go seeking food and they collided with the Pueblo people, the Hopi and, and others, and that produced some conflict and out of that came, I believe, the Apaches and the Cherokee. But Actually, I shouldn't name the tribes because I'm sure I'm, I'm screwing this one up. But, but you get my point. And Jack said to me, you know, why did you guys come here and just start slaughtering us? Who does that? And he said, we call this Wetico, this, this cultural mental illness. But he said, I'm beginning to wonder if it goes more than cultural. Is there something in your genes? I think that bullying and authoritarianism are temperamental. I think that we are born with a specific temperament. And throughout our lives, we express that temperament. We struggle with that temperament. Some people are very paranoid. Some people are very passive. Some people are very expressive. Some people are very introverted. Some people are very extroverted. I really think that there's a piece to this that has to do with how we're born. Now, whether, whether it ties to ancestry and lineage and place or any of that stuff, I don't have a clue. But I've, I, you know, I've raised three kids and I've, I've known enough uh, children and I was one myself to know that basically the person you are when you're 70 is pretty much the person you were when you were eight years old. And here's Billy Barr being this bully. And, you know, is that... Is that the kind of person, you know, I believe it is. I, th I think that the authoritarians that rose to power in, in the Nazi movement in Germany, the authoritarians who rose to power after the Spanish Civil War with Franco, and Franco, you keep in mind, persisted right up until the 70s with an authoritarian, basically fascist government in Spain, um, Mussolini. I think that the people who are drawn to them are people who are bullies, have been bullies all their lives, have a bully temperament, and the people who, and, and, and they themselves are, and they recognize each other. And I think that's what you're seeing at the Trump rallies, too. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, how do you take on a bully? Right now, you've got Bloomberg trying to take on Trump by ridiculing him. I'm not sure that's going to work. today from Warrior Is by Harley and Robin Zephyr. It's the story of their great-grandfather who, in real life, killed Custer at Little Bighorn. 
And in fact, there's a map of the war, as it were, the battle. And they say that he is now the spirit keeper of Custer, which is remarkable. And there's a page and a half introduction to the book, and then it becomes a historically accurate novel, basically. This story is the traditional and cultural account of the life of Nikokju Lakota warrior Mato Nianpi, saved by Bear, his name in English, also later known as Scarleg. Warrior is based upon a true story. What you are about to read has been told to us through our family, passed down as oral history from generation to generation. Every family has its own story. This is ours. It's up to you to visualize and experience the events described herein in order to determine what you believe or what you choose to accept from what you learn from these pages. You've likely never read a story quite like this before. In Warrior Is, the reader is able to visualize and experience the events and circumstances of Mato Nianpi's life. Many times the story is told in the present tense, such as if you were walking with Saved by Bear and his people as the events unfold. This was our original manner of storytelling. Other times the story is narrated in the past tense to account for a past perspective. Those of us who may not be entirely fluent in particular words or specific language as much as we may be fluent in spirit and honest communication, the life messages many times can be more meaningful than just the written or spoken words. Warrior is follows the timeline from the time of creation moving through Saved by Bear's birth in 1849 and going up to July 1876, two weeks after the Greasley Brass Battle. Please exercise your free will and follow your conscience when reading this story. The spiritual side is called upon you to open your spirit so that you may read this tale and learn about these events through your own spirit. And, you know, continues sort of like in that line, but here, right to the book. Prologue. He smelled the yellow of the sun. His spirit was alive and energetic. He felt the energy in his chest and all along the blood running through his veins. He looked to his left to see his great friend by his side. The strong scent of sage caressed his nostrils and reminded him of home. The movement over the high-running hilly ridge to the south caught his eye. He and Swift Bear sensed and felt the pathway opening up. So much had occurred so quickly, so suddenly, so dramatically. Their call to duty, his call to duty, filled his mind, his heart, his spirit. Today, it was meant to happen. It was presented to the people from the Creator. The plan was made. The warriors summoned. The preparation was done. It all led to this place, this portal in time. The sparse clouds to the west resembled mare's tails, and for a brief moment he remembered his white stone friend in the White Mountains. He remembered his spiritual commitment to protect his people, Grandmother Earth, and the sacred Hees Hapa. And time stood still for a moment, a small moment in time, through all of the ancient and original history of all the moments of time. And as the group of the horse-mounted soldiers rode briskly over the far ridge, the Creator shined that warm, nurturing light upon these warriors. Such as Creator had been doing since the beginning of time, since the beginning of Grandmother Earth and Grandfather Sky, and at the beginning of all things, all the moments of time forever had arrived here, now. It had come to this. Creator's strong will and great invisible hand had placed them here. It was the Creator all along. It always was. It always would be. For one to know what led the young Lakota warriors to be here at this fateful site near the greasy grass river on this warm, sun-drenched day, one must go back, go back in time, way back to the beginning, when it was only the Creator, and the Creator of all things decided to create a new world. Her name would be Unsimaka, Grandmother Earth, and she would be created to hold and sustain life, all kinds of beings, all kinds of people, 
would be given and placed upon and within her to show her love of life. And this is how it all began. Chapter 1, Origin. The human beings evolved from the spirit. Before arriving in Wind Cave, we were star people. Many of us came from a place called the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, an ancient star grouping and constellation that contains worlds comprised of the gift of life-giving water. Water is life. Mini Wikoni. The Pleiadian influence is an absolute, but those of us who claim to be relatives of the Pleiadians share a common bond with other indigenous people, regardless of where we are geographically on the earth. We will always remain Pleiadian star people. Spiritually, we have become human beings of different races and ethnicities, but the origin of our spirit is the water. And for us, and as to who we are, as the tribal people in a family way, our name is Minkoju, it's evidence. It means life's subsistence through the gathering and planting by the waters and or river. The Minikochu spend their lives living by the waters. This is something that many of our own people do not know or understand, but this is our history, not only of our physical existence, but also the history of our spiritual existence on Unsimaka. The book is Warrior Is by Robin and Harley Zephyr. Let's try Denise in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Denise, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I'm trying to do the despair is no option part in my political world. And I've come up with an idea, and I think that this might do some good. Everybody has to do something, right? Yep. I'm writing letters to the editor of my newspaper. And the latest one I wrote, I simply started saying, I took my definitions out of the dictionary, so these cannot be argued. And I talked about socialism, democracy, fascism, dogmatism, and I didn't have to say anybody's words or any, anybody's names. By the time you get done reading it, you get it. You get that social democracy is what is a good thing for America right now. But what I'm asking all of your listeners out there to do is if they have any talent for writing, to just write to the letter, write letters to the editors of their small town papers because the elderly people without Facebook, without laptops, without you know phones and all that stuff, they're the ones they're the most afraid of socialism. And if mm. we can reach them, that's just my my personal mission is to try to reach the elderly and get them not yeah. to be afraid of socialism. That's my idea. Well, and voting rates among people over fifty are really really high. Right. And they go up substantially into the 60s. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, thank you, Denise. Thanks for the call. Charles in Flora, Indiana. Hey, Charles, what's up? Yeah, I was listening to you about uh, oligarchies in the South, and mm-hmm. I just found it really interesting because I've just read a book, The Great Conspiracy by John Logan, which was written in 1885, and that really explains how the oligarchies did and how they caused the Civil War. Really? Uh, and, and I was wondering if you'd ever read that book. I haven't, but I'm, I'm making a note right now. The Great Conspiracy. Yes. By John Logan, you said? Yes, L-O-G-A-N. Cool. I'll go looking for it when I get off the air today and get a copy. Thank you very much, Charles, for the, for the heads up, for the tip on that. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
On the line with us is our old buddy, Dr. Justin Frank, MD. He's a psychoanalyst. He's a clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. He's the author of Obama on the Couch, Bush on the Couch, and now Trump on the Couch. His Twitter handle is Justin Frank MD. Dr. Frank, welcome back. Hi. Nice to be back, Tom. I want to run something by you, and with apologies that we didn't get this to you before you came on so you could prepare for it or think about it, but I, I know you think fast on your feet, and I, I really want to... I hope so. <laughs> uh, radio station CJAD has a great host. His name is Dave Kaufman, and Dave did an interview with a celebrity and a comedian who used to work on The Apprentice with Donald Trump. His name is Noel Kassler. I want to play you about a minute clip. It's a little more than a minute of Dave Kassler in this interview describing his experience of working with Donald Trump and use that as the thing to set this conversation, if that's all right with you. So this is Noel Kassler. I told him the real deal about Trump that people didn't know. He was an open drug addict. Everyone knew it. None of this stuff was a secret, you know, that he was doing coke on shows 20 years ago when we do you know, the the VH1 Fashion Awards, and I used to do the beauty pageants with him in the 90s. You know, he was an open drug user, open sexual assaulter, and this stuff was just kind of accepted. And it's not, um, this you is the heard host, this firsthand, you saw this with your own eyes. Absolutely. That's when most of the drug use occurred on The Apprentice, when he had to read cue cards. He'd get really nervous, so he'd go in the bathroom, crush up Adderall. He'd come back to set, there'd be white chunks flying out of his nose, white powder under his nose. He's doing the same thing as a candidate and as a president. You know, it gives him a feeling of being in control. But he's clearly an addict. If you know anything about addiction, untreated addiction as a president is the worst thing you could have. So, yeah, he was obviously high that night. It was, uh, that was the same person we saw in The Apprentice. And I remember watching that and like, yep, he's high. And it was probably, you know, probably wasn't just Adderall. You know, he did coke, he did meth, he had drug dealers coming to the after parties, selling it to him. Adderall is his maintenance high. It's what he does during the day. When he gets down to Mar-a-Lago and these other places, he, he gets into it a little harder. He also uses benzodiazepine, you know, uh, Valium and stuff to come down when he hits it hard. So when you see him slurring and stuff, that's from the benzos. So, you know, he goes on, and it's a pretty shocking interview, and he also talks about, you know, being witness to Trump sexually assaulting people. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a few thoughts about it. First of all, I had a chapter in my book that I did not submit to the publisher, which was called The Adderall Presidency. And I decided that there was not enough data, there was hard data about it, but I, in terms of evidence, and I wish that you know, I had known Noel earlier and that there was some more data available. But basically, his behavior is very similar to people who are very heavily into cocaine or Adderall. There was a book written last year called Blitzed, maybe two years ago now, about the use of amphetamines by the Blitzkrieg, by the Luftwaffe, and by Hitler's people. And that it allowed people to essentially be awake, you know, 18 to 20 hours a day and be really high and on and able to kind of stay alert and not need a lot of sleep. And I do think that that is not something I would rule out at all about President Trump. 
He does sniff an awful lot when he gives his talks. Even now, you can hear them, him sniffing between sentences or even in the middle of a sentence. And that's something that you see with people who have their nasal passages slightly uh, worn down by uh, cocaine or Adderall, that it's snorted. Um, the problem is that people who have early signs of particular word-finding prefrontal dementia also sniff when they talk. And it's hard to know which is which without having a proper MRI and a proper neurological evaluation, and he needs that. So those are my first thoughts. The second thought is about Adderall per se. Adderall is only available, as far as I know, by prescription. So I'm just wondering who gives him the prescriptions. Who's his doctor? Where is he getting? Probably Ronnie. Co- you know, I forget his last well, name, but the guy who was the question. White House physician that he, he wanted to I know who Ronnie is. He is the White House physician, but you have, it, there is so much control. I mean, it's true, he's the president, and you can get past controls, I guess. But, you know, to write a prescription now, you have to write it out. It has to be a duplicate. I mean, I gotta have to get all kinds of permission to give it to people. I think the second question then is, he doesn't have to get that because cocaine is illegal. You can buy that through any kind of a dealer, and he may have dealers. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he is speedy in certain ways. His yeah. tweets in the middle of the night, his getting up very early, all are consistent with some kind of abuse of a psychic stimulant, psychological stimulant. I don't know where to go with that except that's probably the case. The biggest problem with the stimulants in a president or anybody who has a responsible job is that the first thing that gets compromised is judgment. So people actually can't assess the sanity of what they're saying, but they don't have the judgment in terms of thinking about the consequences of what they're saying and what's going to happen. So it's very similar to alcohol, actually, ironically, that judgment is soluble in alcohol. But then the second problem that's related specifically to stimulants is impulsive behavior, and people are much more comfortable being impulsive, shooting from the hip, saying things impulsively. And then the third thing is rage reactions. People who use a lot of uh, amphetamines have acute rage reactions, recurring rage reactions, and those are really disturbing if that's the case with President Trump. Those are my thoughts for the moment. We have have just a minute left before we're, not even a minute now before we hit a hard break. You wrote a piece called On a Fundamental Level, Donald Trump Does Not Believe in America. Could you speak to that for a moment? Well, on a fundamental level, he doesn't. He doesn't respect people. He doesn't respect law. He doesn't respect the Constitution. He doesn't believe in what America is founded on, which is a three-part system of government. He doesn't really believe in it. He does not respect this country. He is not a person who tries to unite people and bring people together. The whole concept of America is called the United States, not the divided states. You got Dr. Go. Justin Frank, his his article on a fundamental level, Donald Trump does not believe in America. You can find it over at salon.com. And Dr. Frank, of course, is the psychoanalyst, clinical professor, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, and the author of Trump on the Couch. And uh, Justin, Dr. Dr. Frank, thanks so much for dropping by today. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls live from San Francisco in just a moment. Kim in Olympia, Washington. Hey, Kim, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I've been reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, Where Do We mm-hmm. Go From Here? Chaos or Community? I find it enlightening for me and inspiring. Is It reminds us, me, that our country has been through very, very difficult times, and mostly it's been paid through the blood of black people. And we need America white needs to wake up and we are experiencing what the blacks have experienced for 400 years well we're not um, experiencing anything close to that but i get it that but you know people are, uh, white people so are starting to realize at, what tyranny looks like right and look at hong kong and what happened and the reign of terror put on those protesters and nonviolence. we need to learn about nonviolence, yeah. and it's a strategy that Martin Luther King talks about in that book and why it's an essential tool. So it was encouraging to me, and I just want to encourage readers to read it because it will show you how to unite with black people. Great. Kim, thank you. Joe in Cupertino, California. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Hey, welcome to the neighborhood, Tom. I wondered if you to see what Ralph Nader had put down on the intercept about Bernie Sanders over the weekend. I was very inspired by him. Of course, he's quite I have not. I did not read that. Ralph wrote the foreword to my next book. He's, we've been talking, but I didn't read what he wrote about Bernie. Well, if he wins the election against Trump, should he get the nomination? It has to be a massive surge of voter turnout, which will sweep out a lot mm-hmm. of the Republicans in Congress. And so we'll have a much better, more receptive Congress, and that'll sweep out the corporate Democrats and the Democratic National Committee. And it will reorient the Democratic Party to where it should be, which is a party of, by, and for the people. And that's why they want to get fight with him. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. I think the I think the Bernie is the guy who could do it. I think if if Elizabeth Warren were to build a movement like Bernie's or merge them together, she may have that capability too. I'm glad that there are two progressives, you know, out there. But my sense of it is that at the end of the day, it's going to be Bernie versus Bloomberg. Frankly, I think that that's what it's going to come down to in the Democratic Party. We'll see. I mean, you know, I've tried to handicap races before and been very, very wrong. Anyhow, we'll see. Joe, thanks for the call. Sandy in Denver. Hey, Sandy, what's up? Hi. I was at Bernie Sanders' rally last night, the second one uh, since last fall, and I Mm -hmm. was doing petitioning for a senatorial candidate here in Colorado. There's about nine people running against Cory Gardner, and we've got to get him out of there. But I did want to put a plug in for the ladies. There's three progressive women running in Colorado for the Senate. I'm supporting Diana Bray. And there's two this others. This is in the Democratic that, primary? Yes. There's two others. Some are petitioning, some are caucusing. And the three of them, Diana is a strong progressive, supports Bernie and his platform, and is a climate champion. And three of the women have formed kind of a pact. They want to get one of the three of them on the ballot. Uh, the other two Sandy, are we're out of time, but thank you, for, thank you very much.
So when you look in the mirror, do you see wrinkles around your eyes, crow's feet, a large under eye bags? Would you rather not see them? Imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Try it. You won't have to imagine anymore. You'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will even know you're using it. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm, plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Tina in Booker, Florida. Hey, Tina, what's on your mind today? Hi. I was want to ask about, you know, like the electoral votes? Well, I was wondering, I heard that they had to do with slavery and, I guess, industrial or something because they made a lot of money back then. And I'm just wondering, if that's true, why aren't people rising? You know, like they rise to take the statues down and all that? Because that's suppressing our vote, if, I mean, if that's right. Yeah, it, it is right. The electoral vote came about for a couple of reasons. Uh, the main reason was that America was so large, we were, you know, geographically, we were the largest developed country in the world in 1787, physically. And uh, the question was, how do you get people in remote places in Georgia or in Vermont to actually know a candidate? And so the, the solution that the framers of the Constitution came up with was we'll have these, we'll create this thing called the Electoral College who will choose the president and the individual members, the electors, will be chosen by their local communities as wise elders. And the community will say, well, you know, we really kind of prefer John Adams, but if you can vote for Thomas Jefferson, that's okay once you get there. And, and in uh, Federalist 56, I'm pretty sure it is, Alexander Hamilton lays this out and he says that the reason for this is to make sure that we don't elect somebody as a president who is a knave, you know, who is, who is basically a hustler or a scam artist, or who is in the pocket of a foreign government. And uh, I lay all this out. Voted in then. I'm sorry? How did Trump get voted in then? Well, because the Electoral College doesn't work the way it used to, Tina. And, and Hamilton lays this out in Federalist 56. And it worked it fulfilled that purpose for the first 30 or 40 years of America. But then we had, by that time, you know, by the 1830s, 1840s, we had national newspapers. By the 1860s, we had transcontinental railroads. You know, we no longer needed the Electoral College. And back in the 1970s, I think it was 74, Birch Bayh led an effort in the United States Senate to amend the Constitution to get rid of the Electoral College. And it got the two-thirds vote necessary in the House of Representatives. And it was two votes short of a two-thirds majority in the Senate. And, the, you know, and it lost because of a couple of Republican votes. So now there is an attempt to get around the Electoral College rather than amend the Constitution, which is very difficult. And that attempt is uh, called the National Popular Vote. And if you go to nationalpopularvote.whatever it is, it's com or org. I think it's .com. National Popular Vote, though. You plug that in and you'll get it. You'll find that state after state after state has joined this. And each state pledges that whoever wins the majority of votes in the country 
we will give our electoral votes to that candidate. And so had this had enough states to hit 270 electors joined this national compact in 2000, Al Gore would have been president. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have been president. So the only thing that's blocking it are Republican states. And so we need to get on that. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's up? Hi, Tom. I was listening to your earlier conversation, and there's this topic of uh, succession came up today on C-SPAN. And the whole thing is that this whole society and our economy is wrapped around um, monopoly. And monopoly is so prevalent. And then you jump ahead to the Republican Party being co-opted by uh, rich corporations. And the silent Democratic piece of the Democratic, the majority of the Democratic Party since Bill Clinton, that has been corporate influence, that has uh, suffered from corporate influence, and now it gives us Bloomberg. Is corporatocracy or this thing we're living in, isn't it eventually monopoly or totalitarian in nature? And I'll kick back and listen. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Corporations are hierarchies. Corporations are little kingdoms. And if you want to see the difference between an oligarchy and a tyranny, look at the difference between, uh, you know, a small business or in some cases even larger businesses where the owner, you know, is a reasonable person who has a good relationship with with his or her employees and and, you know, runs the company and, and, you know, in a way that's, you know, uh, nice, let's say versus the owners and you know I've worked for people like this back when I was a teenager and you know I remember the guy who was the manager of Bob's Big Boy in East Lansing Michigan where I got a job as a dishwasher and I ended up waiting tables you know for a couple of days because this guy was such an ass that the way he treated the women the waiters the wait staff they called them waitresses back then was so bad that they went on strike they all walked out one day they were sick and tired of his you know his plain petty tyrant particularly directing his rage i mean he would have rages against the, uh, against the girls who are working there and i say girls cuz a lot of them were teenagers and so a bully. that's yeah that that's yeah he was a bully absolutely and so companies by structure are oligarchies and when you get a company owner or manager, like the guy who ran Bob's Big Boy back in the day, then they become tyrannies. Making sense? Is that a good analogy? Yes, yes, it does. And I, thank you for elaborating on that. I would really like to see the progressive wing, that would be Warren and, and Bernie Sanders, get together on a taxpayer bill of rights. Equality for taxpayers across the board. And yeah, I think it's a great idea. And probably Elizabeth Warren already has a plan to that effect. Uh, Randy, thank you. Yeah, and Bernie has spoken, you know, about how outrageous it is that if you make money with money, you pay a maximum 15% income tax. If you make money by working, it's 39%. Really? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. We should simply reverse that, flip it on its head. So this is nuts. We'll be right back. Did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The War on Voting. It should be titled The Republican War on Voting, which is what it really is. Who stole your vote and how to get it back? 
It is the third in the series, the Hidden History series. The first was Guns in the Second Amendment. The second was the Supreme Court, the Betrayal of America. We're doing a book tour on the voting book here. On Wednesday, February 19th, I'll be in Seattle at Town Hall, 7.30 p.m. Sunday, February 23rd in Minneapolis, the Blue State Ball at 1 p.m. Friday, the 28th of February in Portland at Powell's on Burnside. And Sunday in Chicago on March 1st. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. All the information is there. Well, a startling story over at rawstory.com about how the, uh, the Border Patrol, the headline is, does Donald Trump have a secret police waiting in the wings? It's a fascinating article by John Stower. And they're quoting this guy from the Border Patrol, which says, Border Patrol does not believe they are a civilian law enforcement agency. They believe they are kin to the Marine Corps. They do not believe they are accountable to Congress, which is why they have no issues lying to them even while under oath, which has happened repeatedly. They believe they are only accountable to presidents like Trump. Border Patrol believes it is not required to answer to local police, FBI, CIA, or any other law enforcement agency. They claim to be the, quote, premier, end quote, law enforcement agency, and this is in italics, superior to all others. They say they will become, quote, a national police force, end quote, to be used by a president to enforce laws even among citizens. Check it out. It's over at rawstory.com. It's truly, truly chilling. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's up? Uh, hi, Tom. I wanted to touch on the whole apparatus of voter suppression. There's a technique that's used with the mass communication media to suppress people, especially on the day of voting. And what that technique basically is to downplay any type of chance of a really popular surging candidate who might be challenging the establishment, basically putting down or just ignoring any chance that that person might win. So this is very analogous to what we see with Bernie Sanders, where the Iowa caucus was basically thrown into this you know, fog of war type of situation where nobody knew what was going on and days later, when in fact it was quite clear that he came out with the most actual raw votes of individual voters, if not each and every single caucus who you know, varied in size. Right. What I'm specifically referring to for people to check out, and you might want to take a look at it yourself if you haven't already, on Netflix, there's a, a tremendous series that's called Narcos, and this current season that just came out focuses on the rise of the Mexican drug cartel, the amalgamation of many different drug organizations into one big national cartel led by a man named Felix. And what it shows is how the final piece for his empire building, which we see today, uh, this takes place in the mid-80s during the Ronald Reagan era, was he allied himself with the PRI, which is the revolutionary, the permanent revolutionary party of Mexico, which is very corrupt. And at this period, yeah, this, is, this time, is Vicente Fox's party, wasn't 
I believe so. And the yeah. the character now, some of this stuff might be fictionalized because you know <laughs> they don't always want to drag a whole lot of people down. But they very accurately portray uh, news that I well remember. They bring in the School of the Americas, the, the Sandinistas versus the Contras, the involvement of the CIA, all things that were splashed all over the headlines. So we, we had a tremendous amount of transparency at that time about what was going on and, and, and the involvement of uh, what was going on in the Mexican side of the border. Well, in it, the, the key point I'm trying to bring out was they're having a big election. And it was one of the most widely hailed elections for transparency, where there were all kinds of uh, advisors and, and observers and lawyers present that had handwritten ballots. There were tallies in front of people publicly, and each tally from each precinct. Paul, let's cut to the chase central here. Computer. The computer program was hacked by the drug dealer, and he used it to put the PRI in power to cement oh, his alliance. And, and they went yeah. on to have from one, one billionaire in Mexico to 25, they privatized everything. That was his... Yeah, and now, and now we're seeing that the Russian government, or Russian hackers anyway, were inside some of our voting machines. We know about the ones in Florida, apparently other states. There were Iranians in them. There were North Koreans in them. There the, were the, uh, the, people the, from the, the United thing Arab Emirates. Is, the key thing is to broadcast over the mass media that, oh, it looks like all those polls about Bernie Sanders were wrong. He's just right. so far behind. Well, this is, this the, is the exact were, same thing we saw, Paul, and, and thank you for your comments. This is the exact same thing that we saw where, you know, oh, Hillary Clinton lost the election. Well, wait a minute. The exit polls in Florida show that she won. The exit polls in North Carolina show she won. The exit polls in Pennsylvania show she won. We're talking a 5.9 point swing. The exit polls in Wisconsin show she won. You know, let's have a conversation about that. We took down, or, or the Ukrainian people took down the, the, the Yanukovych government, the, the government of Ukraine, because the exit polls didn't agree with the official tallies. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, friends, wanted to give you the latest news about my good friend Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way. He's now out with a great new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out The Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives like Maxine Waters, Mark Bocan, Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump. Plus his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House Congress and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in our country, so I'm so glad he's still out there on the left and stronger than ever. I encourage you to join me by subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, search for the Bill Press pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press pod. Check out Bill's new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Michael in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind? Love your show. Thanks for having me on. I want to ask a question. I We've noticed with, like, the Clinton presidency and now the Trump presidency that if the House and the Senate are controlled by two different parties, that the president can be impeached but not convicted, basically, you know, due to partisanship, it appears so far. I'm wondering if the situation goes so far as to theorize that 
if the House and the Senate are ever controlled by the same party that is not the party the president represents, then have we got to a situation where a president could not fail to be convicted of an impeachment regardless of the validity I, I, of the impeachment? I, you know, it would have to be a two-thirds majority, Michael. I believe, I'm not certain of this, but I believe that the Senate was controlled by Democrats in the Clinton impeachment. Newt Gingrich impeached him in the House, and then that went to the Senate, and, you know, it didn't go anywhere. I mean, you know. Um, well, you right, know, because of the Democrats but, shot it down, same as the Republicans shot it down this time, right? I, right. I get what you're saying I, I about believe the two-thirds. So. But, yeah. But, so, but two-thirds is a really, really high bar. I mean, that's why they put it in there. So, basically, so it wouldn't be a fear unless the Senate and House and Senate were controlled by the same party that opposes the president's party, and the Senate has... In an overwhelming fashion in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. In the House, it requires just a simple majority, but in the Senate, they've got to have two-thirds of the vote, and and, uh, that's I think that's always going to be a challenge. So, yeah. Thanks a lot for the call, Michael. Sam in Pasadena. Hey, Sam, what's up? Yes. Hi. I love your show. I love it even more when I found out... I love it even more when I found out you're a vegan. So uh, I wanted to talk to ask you about some veganism uh, stuff. Why do you think that people are as progressives? Don't you think more people would be wanting to try it out or uh, because, you know, it's really fighting for injustice, climate injustice, injustice for the voiceless. So I don't want to get your opinion on why so many people are not receptive to the idea of veganism. Well, you've got Trump and Rush Limbaugh and all these guys saying that, you know, the Green New Deal is coming for your hamburgers and things like that. And people resist lifestyle changes, particularly large lifestyle changes. I mean, for me, uh, becoming a vegan after I'd been a vegetarian since I was 17, so I basically just cut cheese and eggs out. Our kitchen is 100% vegan. But I think that if the average person was just to, let's start with meatless Mondays, you know, get get an impossible Whopper at Burger King or just have salad, you know, there's lots of great, great food that is plant-based. That what would happen is that you're extending your lifespan, you're reducing the risk of heart disease, you're reducing the risk of diabetes and obesity, you're reducing the risk of cancer, actually. And, you know, it was outside the mainstream for a long time, Sam, and there's a lot of people who, you know, veganism is also often associated with, you know, PETA and the animal rights movement. I had this conversation with the president of PETA last week on this show. But there's an amazing video on Netflix now that was made by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has become a vegan, about plant-based diet. It's called Game Changer. And he interviews and shows literally the strongest man in the world. He's a vegan, the fastest runner in the world, a vegan. You know, two-thirds of the members of one of the big NFL football teams now are vegans. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's really quite extraordinary. And if you want to help the planet, and if you want to help yourself, and if you want to help your pocketbook, dial back on the meat and the animal products and the dairy products. Just dial them back and ultimately, gradually, you can get to to zero painlessly. Sam, thanks for the call. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. 
and you know, she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air and it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. Uh, no charge for that. So we're trying to get the word out. There's so many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. Terry in Ventura, California. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Great to talk to you. The national popular vote. That's been one of my issues, okay? Quick mm-hmm. question a quick comment. I don't believe in wasting my time and money, and I have I have called and sent letters via their website as to strategy. My comment, remember uh, Bush B. Gore? If I recall history correctly, at the very last minute, if all the votes were counted, the state legislature said we will appoint the change of the law and appoint the uh, electors via the legislature. My point. Yeah, they didn't do it, but there were Republican members of the Florida House of Representatives who were saying that to the media, but, you know, it never came to that. And frankly, I, I don't know that they could have pulled it off. I doubt that. You know, I think that was more bluster than anything else. Oh, I think some were serious, Tom. <laughs> they have no respect. Yeah, for well, I'm sure he was, you know, the guy was dead serious, but but whether he had mm-hmm. even a majority of Republicans in Florida who would go along with it, I'd, I'm doubtful. I mean, the Constitution right. of Florida requires that if an election is within a half a point or a point, I forget which it is, then there has to be an automatic recount. That's why the state Supreme Court ordered a recount. It you know, it comported with the Florida Constitution. And the 10th Amendment mm-hmm. says that basically states get to run their own elections. So when the Supreme mm-hmm. Court interfered the Florida election by stopping the recount, the recount because, and if you read the filings in Bush v. Gore, because complainant George W. Bush will be irreparably harmed if the recount continues, end quote, mm-hmm. when they interfered and stopped that recount, they basically handed the election to George W. Bush. And we learned later when the count was recounted by the New York Times, the Washington Post, that, in fact, Al Gore won Florida by any measure. So the original count was was light by a few thousand, quite a few thousand votes, it turns out. So, you know, this is is something we got to That's not my main question, Tom. It's related to it, though. My main point I wish to make is if you had a change of the legislature, They would change that law in a heartbeat. And the point I tried to make to the people of the national popular vote is their strategy. They just are totally dependent on having the legislatures change the law. Gore versus Bush, the point was they would change the law in a heartbeat. There are enough states, Tom, that you could use the initiative, like Michigan just did about gerrymandering, okay? There are enough states, if they were to have initiative, they could put it on the ballot and the legislature wouldn't change the law at the last minute. I don't believe in wasting my time. I want this to be... So you're suggesting that this should be done by ballot initiative rather than by legislatures. You know, only about half the states allow for ballot initiatives, mostly states west of the Mississippi, but, uh, you know, only about half of them. But your point is well taken, Terry. I don't disagree with you. Nikki in Joplin, Missouri. Hey, Nikki, what's up? Hi, Tom. This is Nikki Oliver. I'm from Joplin, Missouri, and I just wanted to give you a little hope here and your viewers. I'm older. I'm a senior citizen, and we're a lot more progressive than people give us 
you know, credit for. And I'm, I agree. And senior citizens that. know what Medicare is. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And if they knew that they're trying to take it away, really, if they had the right information, you know, I mean, yes. not progressives, uh, the Republicans. But mm. um, I think people in red states like where I come from, they're so the ones that don't like Trump are so afraid you know, that they're go, they will go middle, you know, in the primaries because they're so afraid he'll get elected again. And there's a lot of young people even around Joplin that like Bernie and Warren. And But what do you think about, I think Trump will turn on Bernie and it might be reverse psychology, you know, with Trump. Yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, the re- in 1980, the Republican Party changed their strategy and went to a base strategy. They were going to reach out to people who were fervent. Ronald Reagan campaigned on ending abortion, overturning Roe v. Wade. He campaigned on overturning Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 Supreme Court decision that desegregated schools. He campaigned on radically cutting taxes. He campaigned on, on the stuff that previously had been considered the fringe of the Republican party and he won and ever since then every Republican has run a base campaign rather than trying to cater to the center but all this time Democrats have been trying to cater to the center ever since you know uh, George McGovern went down in flames in 72 and I think it's been a huge mistake and I think George McGovern's candidacy in 72 was very flawed he was a flawed candidate. Ed Muskie would have been a much stronger candidate, but Richard Nixon yeah. and Chuck Colson took him out in the primary because uh, they wanted to run against McGovern. And then McGovern had Tom Eagleton as his VP, and it turned out Tom Eagleton mm-hmm. had, had electroshock therapy for depression. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was just it was just screwed up. People say now they go, oh, if you get Bernie, you're going to have McGovern again, and we'll get wiped out. No, mm-hmm. Bernie is not McGovern, and this is not 1972. <laughs> I think right. that if we have a candidate that activates the, the, the base. Nikki, thank you for the call. I think if we have a candidate who activates the base, who gets people enthusiastic, we have a solid chance of winning. If we have another kind of Hillary Clinton candidate where, yeah, there's a lot of people who are really excited about the, the possibility, the historic possibility of a woman as president. There was a lot of that kind of energy with Hillary Clinton. But with regard to policy, there was virtually no enthusiasm. And so a lot of people just said, eh, you know, I'm not going to vote. And, you know, as Pocan points out, hundreds of thousands, 200,000 people in Wisconsin who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 didn't show up in 2016. And, and you know, uh, Trump won Wisconsin by 20,000 votes. So uh, that's my biggest concern about Bloomberg, f- frankly, is that he's not going to, uh, he's not going to activate young people. Now, he has been throwing enormous amounts of money into uh, climate change work. And I salute him for that and into anti-gun violence work. But, you know, if that's going to be enough to overcome his Republican past, basically, I'm skeptical. But we'll see. We'll see. I mean, again, I'll vote for whatever Democrat. If it's Bill a cat, I'll vote for it. Megan in Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Megan, what's up? Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I am one of the many Bernie supporters who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because I understood that primary season was over and that we needed to vote for a Democrat in the general. And now this ad by Bloomberg is attacking Sanders supporters is terrifying to me (laughs) because I I actively go online and I'm trying to like spread love. I, I get the narrative that the Russian bots are pushing about Bernie supporters. But many of us are very 
level-headed, care very deeply about our democracy that is being dismantled before us. And so I just wanted to make the point that when you were talking about studying bullies and talking about Barr, I think it's really important that us as progressives figure out, have a reckoning in the party, because we've got to figure out how to bridge the gap with the moderates that are doing, you know, again, his Bloomberg's ad, it wasn't even substantive on policy issues like the book that you read. That's because you can't attack Bernie on substance. Yeah, you, you, right. you just can't do it. And websites like DU and others that are constantly attacking Bernie are simply, in my opinion, simply spreading Russian disinformation. They're spreading these bots and it's not a, a good thing or a healthy thing at all. So thanks for the call, Megan. Greg in Issaquah, Washington. Hey, Greg, what's up? Last uh, minute, quick question. Greg. If, the, if the, the election, the presidential election comes down and swing states go against the current president, what kind of authority does the president have to assert that millions of illegal voters caused him to lose the election by tipping these states and suspend it? Well, I'm just curious about what he can He has do. no authority to do it, but I absolutely predict he will do that. And this, you know, Bill Maher keeps asking this question. I keep asking this question. And it's a question we need to ask of politicians. The Democratic Party needs to be ready for when Trump loses the election and then declares that it was that he fraudulently lost and that he really won. And he gets the bikers out in the streets and he gets, I mean, you think Bernie bros are bad? Have you seen an, uh, a Trump rally, a Nazi rally? I mean, this is the real danger. And it's a real danger that he'll refuse to leave in Washington, D.C., becomes the spark that starts some sort of a civil war, a second civil war in the United States. And Trump is perfectly willing to take the, take the country down along with himself, just like Adolf Hitler did. I mean, it's just, and, and he wasn't the only guy who did this. So anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. Tag, you're it. And tell your friends where to find progressive media like AM 910 right here in San Francisco. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Picture your face in the mirror. See all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet, large under-eye bags? Now, imagine they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Try it. You won't have to imagine anymore. You, you try this stuff, you'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. And you may want to brag about it. I don't know. Anyhow, go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an, ex- an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com. Code Voices.